good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for sticking with. Uh, page 12 and 13 have an outline. Let's just say I'm going to go a little bit rogue from that outline. Um, I've had some good conversations with people and I think we need to think a bit about uh, how rest works in the whole Bible. So that's where we're going to go uh, today. Um, when people ask me what are my hobbies, I say I have five kids. When people say, what do you do to rest? I say, I have five kids. Uh, we're going to be thinking today about rest along the theme of, like, along the track that covers the whole Bible, which may be a little bit frustrating. It might be like one of those tours they do when you sort of go and visit England and you kind of get on a coach and they sort of uh, drop you off some cathedral and they say, go to the bathroom, look at the cathedral, and be back here in 30 minutes. And they go, ah, that's frustrating. But we're going to do something like that, a uh, tour that will kind of go the length of the Bible, pulling together the themes around uh, rest. And it will tie together what we looked at uh, in the first two talks, where we looked at the seventh day and the Sabbath day. And now we're going to land uh, our coach tour in Hebrews chapter 4, where we'll finally even talk about another day. Another day today that we are invited to hear God's word and respond in faith and therefore enter the rest that God has offered us. That's where we're going. Because here's the, 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 the big issue that Christians often struggle with. Um, to read the Bible as Christians and not just as Jewish people. So what do we do with the Sabbath commands today? Some people go, obey it pretty similarly to the way a Jewish person would do it, except just on Sundays rather than Saturdays. Um, is that what we're supposed to do? Um, well... There's a verse that kind of answers that question. Turn to your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 16 and 17. What do we do today with the Sabbath as Christians? Colossians 2, 16 says this, Therefore do not let anyone judge you, but what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or... A Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So what we want to do is today work out how the shadow of Sabbath finds its reality in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 says, All God's promises are yes in Jesus. The question today is, how are God's pointers and signposts and shadows in the Old Testament categories of Sabbath fulfilled in Jesus today for the Christian? And when you get that right, then you'll kind of see how the whole Bible fits together. So what you find, the fourth commandment of have a Sabbath and honour God in that is never repeated in the New Testament. Instead, we get told, don't let anyone judge you by whether you keep a Sabbath day. Or in Romans 14, verse 5, you'll find that Paul says, one person considers one day more sacred than the other, and another person considers all days alike, 
do not judge between each other. In other words, he's saying both positions are perfectly acceptable for a Christian and it cannot be therefore put on the conscience of a Christian to keep one day as sacred and another as different. And that must include Sabbath day, particularly if you read Colossians 2.16. Do not let anyone judge you. He's not saying don't let them be judgmental. You know, it's up to you to work out how you work it out. That's how often Christians read it. But no, look at verse 17. Why does he say, do not let anyone judge you? Colossians 2, 17. For there is a these are a shadow of the things that have come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The reason you must not let people judge you about Sabbath day observance is the Sabbath is a shadow of a reality, which is the thing that really matters, finding rest in Jesus. And the Sabbath was a signpost to the reality it was a shadow that pointed to something else in the old testament there's these things that the bible sometimes uses the language of shadows do you remember did any of you have uh sorry i'm just looking around at age uh <laughs> when i grew up some of the teachers used those overhead projector things mm -hmm. and you could put um like a a book on it and you couldn't see because you just got the shadow up on the screen but you could see the shape of the book you probably couldn't see the title you definitely couldn't see the title. Um, now, in the Old Testament, there are a whole lot of things that the Bible describes as shadows. They're not the reality. They're sort of the outline of the reality. The reality, the Bible says, is found in Jesus. The shadow, the Bible says, are things like Sabbath or the temple or the food laws or sacrifices. All of them express different aspects of what Jesus will do for us. He is our temple. He's the place we meet with God. He is our rest. He's the one we find our purpose in. He is the Lamb of, the, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist says. You see again and again, you see shadow, shadow, shadow. Jesus is the answer. All the promises find their yes in Jesus. So my question today is, how do those shadows relate to the person of uh, Jesus on the question of rest and we looked yesterday at two days the seventh day and the Sabbath day and those two days seventh day Sabbath day are together pictures that point towards a bigger theme rest don't confuse Sabbath as being the same as rest Sabbath is kind of like a smaller circle and what we're going to see today is it's actually one little bit in, in the, a much bigger circle which is what life's all about, which is rest. So rest is our big theme today. And you see, I want to suggest that rest is more than just remembering to have a day off. Rest is the big theme and storyline of the Bible. It runs the length of the Bible. And at heart, it is a picture of the purpose of life. Rest is a picture of life lived in right relations. And you see it right there at the beginning of the Bible. Rest was where we were in right relationship with God right relationship with one another and right relationship with creation and you'll see when sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3 every single one of those relationships is distorted and changed forever rest is lost they're cast out of the garden of Eden and they go out to a place where work is hard where it's toil and there's thorns and thistles and there's conflict between man and the woman and the garden's not responsive to him he's not responsive to one another and he's hiding from God and trying to cover. And what we're going to do today is look down the length of the Bible and we'll land in Hebrews chapter 4, that second reading, and find that all of that finds its fulfilment in Jesus. But let me bring together what we've looked at 
so far together under that heading of rest. Remember, the first thing we looked at was creation, and we looked at the seventh day. I wonder if you've ever realised that there's actually in the book of Genesis two accounts of creation. Uh, by the way, I'm going to say a few things today that not every Christian will agree with. Uh, Christians find a lot of controversy around the topic of Sabbath and a lot of controversy around how to read the opening chapters of the Bible. Um, you know how they say, don't talk about sex, pol uh, politics or religion. Well, I'm going to cover most of those. No, uh, <laughs> don't cover Sabbath, don't cover days of creation. Well, I'm going to do both today. So kind of just warning you, I am going to go hard and present a view that I know is not the view of every Christian. And if that's not you, I'm not trying to disrespect you. But I will try and present a view and try and persuade you as to show you how it can make sense of the stories of the Bible. You notice that there are four accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Well, it shouldn't surprise you, there are two accounts of creation in the book of Genesis alone. And the first is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through to chapter 2, verse 3. And the second is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 to, say, the end of that chapter. I'm not sure why the uh, editors decided to uh, break it where they did, but roughly chapter 1 and roughly chapter 2. But the first three verses of chapter 2 are part of the first account. Now, I'm not sure if you've thought about it like that, but if you open your Bibles, let me try and persuade you, if you're not convinced of that uh, already, and show you what convinces me, that it's not just one long account chronologically, day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, chapter 2, day 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, but something different. There's actually two accounts which are parallel to each other, looking at the world's creation through diff two different lenses. You know when they kind of, you watch the rugby and they kind of have a, a try and they'll look at it from different angles? That is what happens in the account of creation. One is a big cosmic account. The second is a sort of up close and personal in the garden account. One focuses on God's creative work of the whole universe. And the second focuses on the, the garden and the man's work. Um, let me show you why I'm convinced they are not just one uh, continuous account. Firstly, to do with chronology. Do you notice in Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, male and female are created. You get to chapter 2 verse 5. Uh, we read this, Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no sh plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had, no, uh, had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work, on the, work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the earth. See, the man is gone again in chapter 2, and he gets remade. And then the woman's disappeared, and then she gets remade. What's going on there? It, I know some people try and sew them together in kind of creative ways. I think a straightforward reading is they are not one continuous account, but two parallel accounts. Now, let me say a second thing. At the beginning, within Genesis, there's several sort of section markers, kind of like chapter headings. And then you'll see them throughout the book of Genesis. And one of them falls at the, the sort of uh, connecting line between the two accounts. In chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When you go through Genesis, you'll keep on finding uh, that line repeated at the beginning of a new section. So it's a section marker. You'll find another one in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of family, Adam's family line. Or chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family line. When chapter 2, verses 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Third reason, 
Do you notice even the name of God differs between the first account and the second account? If you read carefully, in the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. In chapter 2, verse 4, it talks about, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And if you know anything about the way that people translate things in the Bible, when you see the word Lord in capitals, it's the word Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. It's not the title. Elohim is a title. God, the, 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 the boss figure. Lord God is Yahweh. And it speaks of uh, the personal name that was given to God, uh, given to Moses by God, and says, this is who I am. You recall me this. This is how, what Israel knows me by, because it's my personal name. In other words, in chapter 2, continuously you use a different name for God to chapter 1, which is not to say it's contradictory any more than Matthew contradicts Mark, but each of them are are bringing together different aspects that we need to notice, kind of like spotlights putting a highlight in different aspects of God's character. There are two pictures, the two accounts of the one reality, but can I suggest, to take a step further, there are two pictures of rest. Two pictures of rest. In the first account, rest is pictured as the seventh day. It's pictured as a, well, I said yesterday, a chronological metaphor. It's a seventh day is a picture of what we're designed for, to be at rest with God and with one another in creation. God made all the stuff and then we stop and enjoy it together. That's what the seventh day is. But notice that in chapter 2, the picture of rest is not a time or a day. It is a place. In chapter 2, rest is pictured as a place. It's the Garden of Eden, which translates to a, a garden of delights, where there are trees that are good for food and pleasing to the eye. It's just everything about it is abundant. The problem in Genesis is not scarcity, but a picture of abundance, because God is abundantly providing for us. Two pictures of rest. One pictured as a day, the other pictured as a place, but both of them picture the one reality, what life is about. It is blessing under God. It is being in relationship with Him. It is recognising we were created for Him. We are not just workers who are busy doing stuff, producing stuff. Marxism produces, turns humans into units of production. But Christianity says we are in the image of God and made for rest in Him. And notice that that creates a bit of a tension about what rest is. Because in remember chapter 1, rest is the seventh day where God ceases from His work. What's chapter 2? It's when mankind is placed in the garden to work it and take care of it. Do you remember we were trying to work out yesterday, is work, rest the absence of work? Well, in chapter 1 it is. In chapter 2, it's the very work itself, done the way God wanted, before that work is turned bad and unhelpful and kind of toil and labour. One of the reasons, by the way, we think work is a good thing, is work is not, as we may think of it, uh, something introduced when sin enters the world. If something's in the world before sin, it means it's a good thing. Whereas Australians think, 
uh, work was entered into the world when sin entered in. And, and really what we want is just one long weekend. But because of sin, we have to occasionally work for some boss. But as minimal as you can is the ideal. Okay, that's the seventh day. Let's move to the Sabbath day and think about how it points to the big theme of rest. Now, you may want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, but in your notes you'll also find uh, the highlighted bit uh, in, uh, printed in your outline. Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, particularly focusing on this bit. For, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them, rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I want to tell you how I think some Christians read this text. And I, again, can I say, I'm not mocking or not belittling, but I want to say this is not the way I read it, just for clarity, okay? Some people would say to read this text as, Exodus 20 says, have a Sabbath, and that is to have one day off in seven where you do no work. And the reason we to do it is because of creation, for in six days, Lord made the heavenly earth. That is that God had a Sabbath, and every seven days, God rests for 24 hours. And therefore, we should rest too, because God rests and we should join him in rest. Here's my thing. The Ten Commandments are bigger, in my opinion, than remembering to have your day off. The Ten Commandments and the Sabbath, at their biggest level, are helping us to remember what the purpose of life is. So the Sabbath command was not an end in itself, but a reminder of the purpose of life. There are some problems with this view of seeing that Exodus 20 just is a kind of application of the opening chapter of the chapters of the Bible about God resting on the seventh day. Let me tell you some of the problems that I think with that reading. Number one, in Genesis 2, when it says God ceased from his work and he rested, the word Sabbath does not appear. In fact, the word Sabbath does not appear in the Bible at all in the book of Genesis. It first appears in the book of uh, in the Bible in Exodus chapter 16. That is the first time the word Sabbath appears. That all the time from Adam through to Moses, there is no such thing as the Sabbath. We kind of thought, but it was there. He said it was in the seventh day. No, it doesn't say that. It actually says God ceased and he rested. It doesn't say there was a Sabbath. Secondly, when we kind of think that we are joining God in his rest day, that God rests one in seven, it makes an assumption about what's being talked about in Genesis uh, 1 and 2. It assumes that after the seventh day comes an eighth day, that God kind of works and he takes work six and then he kind of seventh day and he rests. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 and that's the eighth day. That's the assumption, that God kind of works in cycles until it's 6 one, six, one, six, one, six, one. And if you ask a Seventh-day Adventist, the reason they're very cranky with you about having church on Sunday is that God's day off is Saturday. 
That's obvious because that's how Jews celebrate it from Friday evening to Saturday evening. And so you're actually missing God on his day off. You know, like when you're, you're you know, if you're married, your, your wife has a day off on a different day. And he's kind of going, well, that's stupid. You'll never hang out together. <laughs> but that's not what is going on. I think, well, here's my suggestion, and I can't prove it from the text yet. But Augustine's suggestion was this. The seventh day was not just a 24-hour period, because notice that it was not like the other days. It wasn't there was evening and there was morning the next day. It was different. His suggestion was this, that it was a picture, an invitation to join God in rest, and that be your purpose for life. All of life, not one day a week. That was his suggestion, and I think he's right. Because here's one of the other clues. Why does God need to rest? It would be heretical to suggest that he does. God doesn't need to rest, but he is picturing what life is about. But here's another reason. If you're on page 12, I've put for you, there are actually two accounts of the Sabbath commandment. Uh, the first is in Exodus 20, which is the account we have when the Israelites went out of uh, Egypt and they gather around Mount Sinai and they hear the Ten Commandments. But then they wander for 40 years in the desert and they eventually stand on the edge of the Promised Land, ready to go in, and the book of Deuteronomy, which translates literally as Deuteros, second nomos law, second reading of the law, because this time, after mucking it up for 40 years in the desert, the next generation hear the law again and say, will you listen this time? But this time the law is read out in Deuteronomy chapter 5 from verse 12, you'll see that the command is in some ways the same, but in some ways different. I italicise particularly the bits that are different. It's got to do with the reason they had to keep the Sabbath. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. All right. I promise you to do some work and discussion. Turn to the people around you. I want you to think those two reasons together. Exodus 20 gives one reason, because God rested on the seventh. And Deuteronomy 5 gives a different reason, because you were brought out of the land of slavery. What gives? How do they possibly not contradicting each other, have a chat. Do you remember in the two accounts of creation, if we thought them together, we get a clearer understanding of what rest is and isn't. It's not just the absence of work, it's the presence of relationship with God. When you see the two commandments on Sabbath, if you think them together, I think you see a clearer picture about what the command is about. Why is it there? And, and do you notice in Sermon on the Mount, Jesus keeps on saying, you've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard the kind of really narrow understanding of the law, but I tell you the reason behind it. It's kind of like we take a brick and we go, look at this brick. And Jesus says, no, that brick makes a house. Look at the house. Understand why it's there. It's not simply to remember your day off. It is to remember your purpose in life, which is why... In six days, and you were rescued from the land of slavery, are actually connected. I'd suggest to you it's because it's two angles on the one thing of rest. There was the day of rest, 
And then the whole nation were brought into a land of rest, out of a land of slavery. And interestingly, remember Genesis 1 and 2, you get a picture of rest in a day and a picture of rest in a place. Notice these two. Picture of rest in the day of rest, Sabbath, and a picture of rest which points to being brought into a land of rest. And as long as they are in the land, they were to remember every week that they were brought out of a land of slavery and into a land of rest. A day and a place both point to something bigger than themselves. They point to the theme of rest, which is our purpose in life. That's all fun and good until Jesus turns up. Come with me to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, the key bit is printed in your handout on the right-hand page. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Now, the thing is that we read Matthew as if it's just a devotional thing written directly to us without any context, having just been launched at us. And we've had a hard week and we hear these words. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And kind of, here's the thing, um, my kids go to a Christian school in Christchurch and I, I, I'm told that almost every meeting they have to have a devotional. It's part of like the rule of the school to keep its Christian character. They have a little devotional and you get these kind of little three minute nuggets. They seem to be sometimes a bit repetitive. It almost seems to be any part of the Bible you get the same point. Um, you kind of have a few stock kind of things you get and you sort of find passages to insert that into. Um, and the danger of that kind of way of reading the Bible is you may have a surface reading all the, all the way through rather than teaching people how to really think the whole Bible together. So when we read the Bible, oh, Jesus is, 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 is one who wants to give me rest. I've had a hard week. And that is absolutely true. But now read it amongst, on the backdrop of 2,000 years of God preparing you to say your purpose in life is rest. And your rest is only found in right relationship with God himself. And Jesus steps into the world and he says, I give you rest. And what do the religious uh, leaders say? If you've got your full Bible, have a look around you in Matthew 11. Straight after this, Jesus has an argument with them about keeping the Sabbath. I say, you're not doing this. The rest thing. And Jesus is saying to them effectively, you know what, I am the rest thing. For 2,000 years, you were prepared for me to come by every week stopping and remembering. I brought you into lands that you might know that the place of God's presence amongst you really matters. And now I step into the world and you instead crucify me because I don't keep the Sabbath and that really annoys you. Because what we're missing is that in the Old Testament, what Colossians 2 described as shadows pointing to the reality found in Jesus. They're a bit like signposts. You know, on the way back to Auckland, you have a picture halfway up on a signpost on the side of the road, Auckland, 60 kilometres away. You would be really stupid to stop the car, everyone get out, and start unpacking the car around the signpost and say, isn't Auckland such a wonderful place? <laughs> I so love the serenity, the kind of... The, the, the car noise, and it's just kind of like feels really urban. And 
Okay, no, 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 that's the signpost. Keep going to the reality. The Jews are sitting around Jesus and going, Jesus, we need to tell you about rest. We, you need to understand, Jesus, that... And they're showing, say, sit at the signpost, and Jesus saying, come to the reality. You who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And Jesus says, I've come to do the work of the Father. And the work we find is actually that he ends up going to the cross where God's glory is shown. And what are his words as, the, as he finally uh, passes away, as his death is uh, completed, he says just his final words, it is finished. It's one word in the original, tetelestai. It is complete. It is done. It is God's work done for us. And that is why when Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest, it's because he's done the work that enables us to stop striving, enables us to rest and know that the way into God's presence, the way back into the garden, the way back into the place with God's people in God's place under God's rule is found only in a person. The day becomes a place and the place ends up being a person. Jesus is the place. Uh, the time, the day, and the person you find rest. And so we need to see that Jesus is to what all that Old Testament stuff's been pointing to. How do you keep the Sabbath? By trusting in Jesus. You don't do it one day a week, you do it every single day of the week. And you notice that it fits into all kinds of other images that the Bible has. When Jesus does a miracle... What would you pick to prove that you were the Son of God? Who would pick turning bread and, uh, and, and fish into lots of bread and fish? Like, if you could do anything, who would make food? Like, it's a weird thing to do, really. Like, I could think of really cool things to do if I had all power and all authority. And it wouldn't be making bread. But remember, Jesus says in Mark, didn't you understand about the loaves? What he's saying, didn't you understand that they pointed as not just something I could do, but who I am? Because who else provided bread for God's people in the desert? Well, it was God himself through his servant Moses, the one who took them out of the land of slavery and brought them to the very edge of the land of rest. But Jesus does one better. He himself makes bread from uh, five loaves and two fishes. He doesn't just have to ask God. He does it himself. And Jesus takes us out of slavery to sin and brings us into the land of rest through his death on the cross. That's how he brings us into God's place. So now come to Hebrews chapter 4 and we'll see land, the place, and day, the picture of God's uh, purpose for us come together once more in Hebrews chapter 4. Now what I might get you to do is um, read uh, in a little group and try and work out how it is that the writer of Hebrews can bring together two apparently different images. <laughs> one is about a day and one is about a place. This is what we found in Genesis 1 and 2, what we found in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And we're finding it again in, in Hebrews chapter 4. He'll talk about entering into the land of rest, a place. 
And he'll talk right back from the beginning of the Bible of God creating a day of rest. I want you to try and read through Hebrews 4 now, thinking about place and time and think them together under the heading of rest. Have a bit of a chat and see if you can somehow think of them together. It's a, in some ways a complex passage. Uh, and it's bringing to, because what it's doing is bringing together the themes of all the Bible and saying, and Jesus brings them all. He's the one. Uh, at heart, let me say, it's about answering the question of how do we enter God's rest? And that the God's rest remains an option for God's people today. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Since the promising promise of entering his rest still stands. But how do we enter into it, is the question. Well, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as the people of the Old Testament did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. That is... It's not enough to hear the Christian message. You must receive it in faith. You must believe it. Verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest. That's how you enter the rest. By believing the message of the gospel. But then he takes you back to two key passages. He takes you to a psalm, Psalm 95, which is written by David. And he takes you back in verse 4 to the very opening of the Bible, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Genesis chapter 2. And he says they're actually the same reality. And it's the same reality that we enter today by putting our trust in Jesus. Now that's kind of very counterintuitive. And what he's doing is he's tying together the whole storyline of the Bible. What he says is in Genesis chapter 2, God created a, a day of rest. And effectively he's saying you... Enter into that day of rest when you trust me and believe in me. Then God brings them into the land of rest through Joshua. And he's mentioned there uh, in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. Uh, does anyone know anything interesting about the name Joshua? Anyone called their kid Joshua? Yes. Joshua is the Hebrew name for the Greek word Jesus, Jesus. And it's interesting, Jesus is the second Joshua, which fits perfectly, doesn't it? Because Jesus is the one who brings us into the promised land, just as Joshua did. Joshua brought them into a physical land, the land of Israel. And therefore, you think they'd arrived at the land of rest. End of story. But remember, signpost, reality. The land is a picture of something bigger than themselves. We are not just all the land end up in Israel and go and build another temple. No, no. It was a picture of the reality found in Jesus, the new heavens and the new earth. But he then goes further. He says, but there's this other psalm, Psalm 95, and it's written by David. Now, think if you know your timeline, Joshua took them into the, the, the promised land. And quite a number of years later, generations later, we find David. And David writes Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is basically saying... Do you know how there was a generation that wandered in the desert and never got, actually got to the promised land? That's a warning to you that you believe God this time and make sure you don't miss out on the rest. But here's the question. Where are they standing when he says those words? In the land of Israel, which is the physical land of rest, isn't it? And the writer of Hebrews is saying David can only say that if he recognised there's something bigger it's, that's a signpost. The reality is something to come, something bigger that the land of rest is just a picture of. 
and he takes you to Jesus and he says, you enter through believing in Jesus. So keep on believing on Jesus. Keep on trusting in Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. That's what Israel did and they wandered in the desert and died. That's what Israel did in the land of rest and God exiled them and kicked them out of his promised land. But we are to keep on trusting in Jesus. But verse 9 confuses some people. Because read just on its own, it sounds like just a flat repeating of the fourth commandment. Let me read verse four, 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Stop. If I just read that, would that not suggest to you that he's just saying keep the, the fourth commandment, have a Sabbath? But what he's actually saying in context is something much bigger. He's saying believe in Jesus and by doing that, you keep the Sabbath. Because by believing Jesus, you enter into the rest that God has given you through Jesus. I'm reading it Christianly, not just as a Jewish person at this point. I'm not just to take a day off in seven. I'm not just to move to Israel. I am to believe in Jesus and all those things pointed to that reality. Verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his, not from one in seven, but from working our way into God's presence, but by trusting in Jesus. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. And having heard all that, we think with new eyes about the words of Jesus, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, you who are trying to earn your way into God's presence, or you who are trying to kind of uh, find your way by all your good deeds, Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, you've got to read the Bible as a trajectory that takes us to where history is heading. And it is a rest in the new creation around King Jesus. People from every tribe, language and tongue. Which is why when you just get caught up with just having remembering your day off or being kind of making sure that you've got a balanced life, you're missing that the purpose of Jesus is for all of us together to enter into this new reality. It's why gathering for church is important. It's why in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, he says, don't give up meeting together because the day is approaching when Jesus is going to return and, and fulfill all the promises that he's made to us. Don't give up meeting. Or in Hebrews chapter 3, he says, don't let sin harden your hearts, deceiving you, but encourage one another daily. And keep on needing one another to, to keep on um, uh, stopping sin creeping in amongst us and depriving us of entering into that rest. And we need to keep on telling people about Jesus because it is not just about us having our day off, but it's about the world hearing that rest is found in Jesus and not by this striving. Remember our work, we try and make an identity and a name for ourselves and we just like to building towers of Babel where we work our way up to heaven. And it's interesting, Hebrew, uh, Genesis 11 is followed in the very next chapter by Genesis 12 and God calls Abraham and it's the exact opposite of human striving. Go back and read Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and it says, And I will, I will 
I will. God will make this happen. It's a contrast between the striving of building a tower to reach the heavens of Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, and God's promise, trust me, and I will bring you into a place of rest. Keep looking forward to it. As a church, you together are not individually but corporately headed towards the land of rest, which spiritually you've already received in Jesus, and you'll see the fullness when Jesus returns. Uh, we'll have some time, time for questions after morning tea, but I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus gives us rest. And we thank you that we are headed to somewhere that all of creation has been longing for. And because of sin groaning, but longing for its release, when we will see the new creation and be able to see Jesus face to face, and where there will be no more sickness or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. Father, please help us to encourage each other all the more as we see that day approaching. Please help us not to just caught up with the shadows, but find the fulfilment in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray, find rest in him through believing your word. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus, our risen Saviour.